last week we had the same text and I was long-winded. Um, <laughs> that hardly ever happens. Um, but the first two verses of chapter 4, they had so consumed me um, all week that, uh, yeah, I looked at my watch and when I was done talking about those first two verses, I was like, yeah, I, we got to go. Um, so uh, we're picking up where we left off. I'm going to read those two verses really as giving us context. Uh, what's happened here is the Apostle Paul has written a letter to Timothy, his disciple, uh, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he has said, Timothy, uh, this is how you're to run your church. This is how it's to be governed. Here are the things that are important. This is what you're to do. And so what's great is we are getting to the end of this letter. And now he is uh, saying, here's who's to lead it. Here's what the structure is to look like. Um, but when we get to chapter four, we get this. Here's why it's so important, Timothy. Boy, I, I laid out this job description for elders and deacons. Um, and boy, it, it was daunting. In fact, I don't know if I've ever been through that list with people where they've just said, wow, that's, that, that's a high call. Um, I don't know if you've ever ordained uh, a pastor, a deacon, or an elder, and them not say, I feel the, the weight of, of what I am supposed to be before God. And, and I humbly put myself before him to, to, to make me into the person I'm supposed to be. But when we get to chapter 4, we understand why. We understand why the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, don't you dare leave that church until you have the appropriate leaders in place. And those appropriate leaders, Timothy, they must understand the words of truth. As he said, sound words, trustworthy sayings. Even our, in our text, there's another one of his trustworthy sayings. Uh, in verses 14 and uh, verse 16 of the previous chapter. Here's a creed, Timothy. Make sure that those you leave in charge don't just recite this, but they know it. They live by it. That they have dedicated themselves to these trustworthy words. And when we come to chapter 4, we have our sights set on why. Because Timothy, that church is going to be under attack all the time. That church... We love the elders wept and cried when Paul left them. You read about it in Acts, the relationship he had with them, uh, the warnings he gave them. He cared deeply for that church. Timothy, that church is is going to be under attack all the time. And so that's what chapter four picks up. So first Timothy, chapter four, verses one to ten. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The first two verses describe the uh, evil forces against the church, arrayed against the church and God's people. We talked about that it is a demonic influence that infects and affects the minds of people and their very conscience, that their consciences become seared. And what a terrible, what a terrible moniker to be called insincere liars. Insincere, you act away and you tell a way that is not true, and you don't really care about it because your conscience has been seared. It no longer operates the way it was supposed to operate. And so we've talked about that is the the context of where the apostle is saying, now you understand, Timothy, why it's so important, not only that we just know the truth, but we entrust it, we guard it, we hold to it, we hold every teaching up against it. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at the remainder of these, these next eight verses um, with the idea of testing and training. So it's basically the apostle saying, since this is true, since we will be under attack, since uh, our enemy is relentless, uh, we must have a life that is a life of testing and training testing what we're going to believe, who we're going to let lead us, what we're going to trust, and a a life of training. So this morning we'll look at these two areas, kind of two areas of testing, and we'll close with the area of training. The first test is the theological test. Uh, We pick that up in verses 3 to 5. Some specifics here uh, in Ephesus Uh, So there's some specific terms that this church was facing, but we can also take that in general to see that generally uh, the the theological drift uh, that takes someone from a follower of Christ to someone who has forsaken, uh, and that's what Paul says, they they eventually they go from questioning to believing another doctrine, another way, another truth, to... uh, wandering away from the faith. So the theological test, the first thing he brings up is marriage. They were forbidding marriage. And so it's interesting in the theological test, one of the very first thing that Paul says is, what is their view of marriage? What do they think of marriage? So it's an interesting thing that even early on in these days, uh, marriage was under attack. Uh, marriage that was designed by God and called good is under attack. They're forbidding it. Like it was not the best thing for a human to be married, denying lawful, God-honoring sexual behavior as if it were bad or it was the cause of evil. To which the apostle says, how can anything be evil that God has created? For everything that he has brought about is good. So it's interesting, the first two things that, that they attack are maybe some of the most, most basic things of being human, right? We eat and we procreate, right? You, 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 don't, you don't really have to teach that. that. That's what happens when you are human. Those desires to eat and procreate are part of the natural order, the way God made things to be. 
how we were before sin entered the world. We were to eat and we were to procreate. Here they're saying, marriage, we're going to forbid it. Uh, I want to ask you, do you realize your stance on marriage? That it comes from creation, and that's, that's one of the last things he talks about, it comes from creation. But it is God-given. It is biblical. It's part of the order that he has set in place. What's your stance on marriage? Well, before you answer that, think about where we have come just as a country. Just as a, just as a, just as a country. People, people say, well, the problem with marriage is uh, same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage. It happened way before that. Marriage has started to fall apart in the United States. One of the things that, that the government did was allow this no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce. And the church's soft stance on that. You know, the, the begging and pleading of couples. Well, it's just, they're bad people. Let's go try again. What wasn't my soulmate. What's our stance on marriage? What's our stance on divorce, on remarriage, on cohabitation? It's alarming to see how many couples who claim to be Christians give a test run to marriage. Same sex, transgenderism. You know, in our city, okay, in this nice little God-fearing city of Grove, there are high schoolers whose parents let them bring their boyfriend, girlfriend, and and live together under the household, (laughs) right in the rooms. I mean, just ridiculous. That's ridiculous, people. It's ridiculous. It's wrong. It's horrible. And it destroys a culture. And it belittles marriage. And it belittles sex. And it belittles what God has created. And they were attacking it in one way, saying, deny it altogether. We are, we are being attacked in our society in marriage by saying, it doesn't really matter. It's just a legal thing. It's just a piece of paper. What's the view of marriage? I mean, you think about even, you know, I don't mean to sound political, and you know I'm not that way, but regardless of where you stand on the court nominee, you know, it's, I find out about things, unfortunately, I find out about things usually in memes and Instagram posts, you know. So I'm like, why is everybody posting about what's, what defines a woman, you know, and, and making all these jokes about what defines a woman, you know. And so then I, I look at it, and I'm like, man, we're being attacked as a society by that. Really, the, the, the destroying of femininity, this beautiful creation that God brought before man, and he said... Wow, you, you did a great job in creation, God. All those things are absolutely wonderful, but wow, this is amazing. And I think as a society, our, our thought life is being attacked so that we can't say this is a woman and this is a man. Um, that's how the enemy sneaks in. What's your view on marriage? Uh, we accept it. We celebrate it. We celebrate even today. It's interesting that today we have a we have a cookout to celebrate a new life being born in our church. We celebrate as a church family, someone entrusted to us, a blessing and a sign of God's blessing. There's a theological test, and I think that's one test that we put on anybody who leads us, anybody who teaches us. We have to be aware of that when you listen to podcasts, when you read books. That's, that's a great theological test question. What is your view of marriage? What do you think about marriage? 
Secondly, food. Here they deny certain types of food and drink. Uh, restrictions, physical restrictions and regulations. And the argument here again is the same. How can certain foods be prohibited when they're created by God for our enjoyment and for our pleasure? Thirdly, creation. All God created is good. What are their, what are their thoughts on creation? It's no mistake, again, that that doctrine of the church has been under attack. And Christians thinking we can compromise, saying, okay, well, we won't, we'll, we'll just treat those first chapters of Genesis as, as just some mythical story. And then, and then you start reading in Matthew, and you're like, wait, they're saying Adam was an actual person. They're saying Abraham was an actual person. They're saying he was, a, he was an actual flesh and blood person that had these kids, and then this is a grandson, and this is a great-grandson. What's your view of creation? Here's what he's saying. That same voice of God that called into existence out of nothing, that same voice of God that created out of nothing everything good has said, food is good. Now last night, we invited some people over and these people think Tammy's the greatest cook in Grove. And I always love it because now, now Tammy's under pressure. So she's under pressure when they come over. I'm like, honey, they're expecting, you know, they're expecting some great things out of you. You know, I love you regardless. But uh, you've got a reputation to uphold. And we sat around the table, and we enjoyed, and we gave thanks to God. You realize that the enemy comes in and says, I, I want to remove what God has given you for your good and ways that you should thank him. Creation, verse 3, marriage and food, God created for our good. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. Now don't make the mistake and think he's saying everything is good. He's not. We are absolutely living in a world that is fallen. And in the fall, when I come back and we study Romans, those first few chapters, we're going to see that the apostle starts his gospel presentation to the church in Rome by talking about what has fallen, what is wrong. Um, and, and some of the same themes will come out. Things that are obvious to us, he says, uh, have, have been denied. But everything that is created by God is good. And, and it's kind of like he says, these positives, and then on the negative side, he wants to make sure that we get it. When we test our theological basis for trusting or listening or believing, verse 4, nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving and made holy by the word of God and prayer. So our theological test, marriage, food, the view of creation, <coughs> and fourthly, gratitude. Verse 3, Timothy, those who teach the church, those who lead the church, are they thankful people? Do they give thanks to God? Uh, Tammy and I have had a particularly rough go last month or two. And um, we do our little walk around Patricia Island. And we pray for people. And sometimes we complain. <laughs> but we always find our hearts are changed at the moment we start thanking God. What he gives us is to be received with thanksgiving. Uh, there's a great apologetic book written by Wade Bradshaw titled Searching for a Better God. As Jason mentioned, the title of it is just amazing because that's what happens. People search for a better God. And one of his, part of his thesis is all human beings, 
when they're born, they, they want to know who to worship and who to thank. Who or what am I to worship and who or what am I to thank? The Christian says we are to worship God and we are to thank Him, uh, not just at mealtimes, but His sovereignty in everything. And so this test of who is influencing you, what tests do you put them through? Do they deny marriage? Do they attack the God-given ordained marriage? Do they deny the goodness of what God has given? Um, what, what philosophy do they teach about creation? And how is the word and the authority of God maintained? That's the theological test. The second test picks up in verse uh, 6 and the start of verse 7. I call this the ethical test. So halfway through verse 6, it says, um, if you put these things before the brothers, um, being trained in the words of faith and good doctrine you have followed. Uh, I'm sorry, halfway through verse 6, you will be a good servant. So I want to just talk about four things in this ethical test. And again, it is super, super important, especially with our culture, where you're going to get better sermons on your phone than I've ever preached. You get better music, I'm sorry, but even better music than these guys have played, right? Um, and it's going, to be, it's going to be edited, and it's, it's going to, uh, everything about the speaker's going to look wonderful. Um, and, and, but, but will you put it through the test? What are they, te- who is he influenced by? What are they, he said, here's the ethical test. First is that you're a good servant. It's interesting, isn't it, Timothy? Timothy, you are doing all of this. You are studying, you are disciplining yourself. You are leading that church in order to serve. That first test, is that person, uh, do they want to serve or be served? Not to receive, to win, to gain, make a name for themselves, but to serve. And who are you serving, Timothy? You're serving God. Not a cause, however noble that might seem. Uh, many churches, they'll get sidetracked by doing these good things, these great causes, instead of the most important thing, worshiping God, applying the gospel to every area of our life. The ethical test, are you a good servant? Secondly, is your doctrine good? Um, we have doctrinal tests, written tests, oral tests, uh, is your doctrine sound? All throughout First Timothy, we have seen this trustworthy, sound words, trustworthy sayings. Is your doctrine good? Does it align with what the scriptures teach? Even historically with orthodoxy. I, I never forget when I got to seminary and we were translating texts and we were putting together devotionals and stuff. And, and one professor says, hey, if you find some new meaning... Don't get excited. Lots of heretics have. <laughs> it's like, if, if, if a thousand years of church history hasn't revealed something that you found, uh, you're probably wrong. And um, good, good doctrine, sound, right, true. Uh, the third thing, a good life. What does the life look like? And we've talked about that before in the requirements. What does the life of this person look like? Is it a life of irreverent, worthless endeavors? Or is it a life that is good? In verse 8 it says, this life, it holds promise in this life and the life to come. And fourthly, 
good prep. Are our leaders, those who influence us, are they still being trained? Uh, have they followed others before them? Have they held themselves accountable? Not devising new, teach new teachings and new doctrines. Those are the tests that the apostle puts before us. These are the tests of uh, who, who would lead us. And as a result of these tests, and it requires something for us, doesn't it? If we are to test the others, then we are to know what is right and true. I want to tell you this. Sometimes a church puts way too much emphasis on the guy in the pulpit. I'm going to just believe what he says. He went to seminary. I didn't. You are the sons and daughters of Christ. You are to be training yourselves. You are to have a keen ear. You are to have a critical mind. This truth that you hear, this statement that you hear, this song that you hear on Christian radio, it just doesn't seem to line up. There is something wrong. That is to be the mind of a believer. And so he takes this beautiful illustration. It's interesting after the Olympics to think about this. He says, have nothing to do with this. And then he says, here's what you're to do instead. In verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. Godliness takes work on our part. Train yourself in godliness. Part of your training in godliness was to, like the quote from Ortland this morning, listening to lots of sermons, reading the word, being in community. Train yourself. And he says, <coughs> physical training here, he puts this out. Physical training has, has value. It's good. It, it, it's important. It helps us. It's wonderful. It has some value. But it pales in comparison to training with righteousness, training ourselves in godliness. So I want you to think about this. If, if our spiritual life, if our spiritual life was put on display as a bodybuilder is put on display, right? and, and it was all out there before everyone, and everybody could see, there, you just couldn't hide it in a nice baggy sweatshirt, uh, it's who you are, right? Out there for everyone to see. What does a bodybuilder do? They put out there, everybody sees it, and then they get graded, they get scored, and they're like, oh, you know, my, my, my back needs some work. My calves need some work, you know. In the old days, that meant you went to the gym. Sometimes today they get implants, but what does that mean? You looked and you found and you saw and you lived a life in front of people, right? You lived a life in front of people, and you found what was missing, you found what was lacking, you went on mission together, you shared the gospel with people, you got into conversations and even arguments at the office, and you realized there were things you didn't know, and you went back and you trained. All right? Now, it's a funny thing, you know, in high school, hardly anybody, any of the guys who like to lift weights, they hardly ever miss bench day. They always want to miss, what day do they want to miss? Leg day. <laughs> Right? We don't like leg day. Some guys do like leg day, but we miss leg day, right? Because, you know, leg day, you, you can wear pants, right? You know, when the summer comes, you want to wear a t-shirt, you want your sleeves to be filled, but leg day, oh, it takes so much energy, it's so painful, you hate it. Um, and I think it's the same way for us. There's parts of your Christian life, I'm sure, that you don't enjoy. Training in godliness, you ask yourself, where am I weak? Is it prayer? Hey, Rev, you know, I, I struggle to pray. 
Talk to one of your elders or your deacons or me. I struggle to pray. How, how can I exercise that prayer muscle? Rev, my marriage and my relationships, they're just, we get by, but they're not what they should be. I feel like, I feel like it, it, should, it should reflect more this relationship that God has with his church, and, and it's not. How do, I, how do I train in that? My family. I'm the last person to, to, to lead in prayer or to teach or to train or to love. I, I just am constantly annoyed. How do, how, do I, how do I train in my family, in my morals, in my sin patterns? Training in godliness. Now, again, it's wonderful because he's talking about those who lead. So you, you never get a picture in the scriptures that, that you're going to have a, a person that's devoted themselves. Uh, they've gone on a mission. They've been out in the, in the wilderness for four years. They've learned everything they need to learn. And, and their journey with Christ and their journey towards godliness is over. You never get that. There is always this training in godliness. It is a never-ending path to glorification. And we are finally there when we see Jesus. We are finally there when we, the Bible says we are like him, but we're able to see him and we are like him. But the godly servant is training in righteousness. See what that means? It is a person who is aware of their need of the grace of God all the time and in every area. And so that's why he says, by the way, Timothy, here's the trustworthy saying. Now, you know what you can do is you can take those trustworthy sayings and you could make a statement of faith for the church of Ephesus. Right. Timothy, these, remember these are the sayings. These are the things you're to remember. These things you're to quote and to say over. And what is it? Here's the trustworthy saying. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. How many Christians wake up in the morning and, 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 and we don't think today, today is another lesson or training in godliness. Today in my path, O oh Lord, whatever you take me through, and I see it as part of your training me in godliness. Some of it, I think, must be structured. It must be. You must be a regular student of his word. You must be a regular friend of God in prayer. But other things come and go, and, and God... My training in godliness involves what you have laid in my path, good or ill. Sometimes the first thing I want to do is have you take it away. But how can I see it as this is part of God's training in godliness? And it holds value in every way. You know, in, in closing, the, the, the training in godliness finds its end in worship. So look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. There's nothing that will evoke worship of God like knowing our God. And there's nothing that will help us in knowing our God greater than the Word of God, understood by the power of the Spirit of God. The sermon, the sentence this morning is that since the battle is, in, is constant, the Christian lives a life of testing and training. There's a theological test involves with us the view of creation, of marriage, of food, of material things. There's an ethical test 
concerns the priority of godliness and the teaching. But ultimately, at the end, you ask yourself, does this teaching, does this community, does it lead me to think greater thoughts about our God? Does it lead me to set my hope ever more on the living God? I love it that he just puts that in there at verse 10. Timothy, when you're, when you're putting these people in place, when you're training, when you're learning, when you're teaching, here is the end. This is the purpose. This is the, the, the telos of where we're going, that we would have our hopes set firmer and more securely on God, not on a teacher, not on a system, not on a government, not on a political party, not on a degree, not on a job, not on a spouse, not on money, our hope set on the living God. We strive, we hope. Where does this theology leave you? Does it leave you trusting yourself, trusting others, or trusting Jesus? Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we long to be this type of person. And if we don't, will you make it so? That our longing is not just to have a time with you that kind of keeps us from feeling guilty the rest of the week. But Father, to truly see that the life that you have laid out for us, it is a life of ever-growing godliness. Father, for many of us, godliness in our life only shows up under tests and trials when things are hard. And we don't long for that to happen, but we pray, Lord, as it does... Maybe our first thought this time would be, how will godliness take root? How is my God dealing with me when I do the same thing to him? How does my God pursue me when I do the same sin to him? Oh, Lord, we pray that we would make it so. We pray that, that those around us would know surely there is something different. It's not that they know more. It's not that they're just smarter. It's not even that they're better people. They have grasped a relationship with the living God. And slowly and surely, that relationship has made the cares of this world grow strangely dim. For their longing is to be like Christ. And they accept what comes, comes what may, knowing that God has put them on a path to being more like Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would grow leaders like that in our church and the churches around. Leaders that would be servants of God, would care about the soul, the affections of their people more than whether the people think they're great or not. Oh, help us, Lord Jesus. We are in desperate need, and we lay our lives before you. Now, as we take the cup and as we eat the bread, remind us of the glory of the risen Christ. That even in light of these words, your people don't stand before you and say, look at my record. I was a really, really good leader. No, we point to Christ always and forever. Look at my Savior. Isn't he wonderful? I am so glad that he has wrapped himself around me and not just cleansed me of my sin, but given me by faith his righteous record that we present, that we live in for eternity. Help us to grasp this, O oh Lord. Help it to have a deep root in our souls, our affections, and our minds. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. 
Amen. <clears throat>